Well, good morning. Um, if we were hoping that this week's text would bring a little lighthearted relief from last week's passage, we were surely disappointed. <laughs> if last week's reading felt like a fast-paced tragedy, this week's reading left us on the fetal position on the floor with poor Job. If this were a sitcom, there would be no way to wrap it up neatly within 30 minutes. This is a very dark part of scripture, so we have a lot to delve into as a result. And I realize that many of us are in different places as we're entering this part of the study. Maybe some of us are in a valley right now. Maybe you've been in a valley for a while. Maybe there's a long, hard thing in your life, still sick without answers, still no husband, no child, no job, um, no salvation for that loved one. Some of us might be wading through very deep waters. Maybe you're here because you've experienced tragedy, you've experienced crisis in your life. You want women to come around you, fellowship with you, pray with you through this. Um, and then some of us may feel a little guilty right now because we're not suffering. Our lives are pretty good and we're thankful, we're grateful for that. Um, but I would still say God has something for you in this. We are called to comfort one another with the comfort that we've received from Christ. And so the Lord has something for you this morning, no matter what place you're coming from today. So let me pray for us and then we'll get started. Lord, thank you that you are the great comforter. You are our father. You love us. Um, because of Jesus and his work, we can come to you and know that we will be received with all of our pain, with our suffering and laments. Um, you love us and you take such good care of us. So help us to see that. Open our eyes so that we can see you at work redeeming hard situations and suffering for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we left Job in a place of devastation. We saw a quick succession of events, one right after the other, that left Job reeling. His wealth was pillaged and burned. His servants were attacked and destroyed. And then the worst blow of all came. Job's precious sons and daughters were killed in a house collapse from a windstorm. And after each tragedy, a lone servant comes to tell Job the devastating news. Not only that, but in the midst of his grief, we learn that Job's body had broken out in boils from head to toe. Unable to sleep or get emotional or physical rest of any kind, um, Job is in utter anguish. And if that weren't enough, his wife, his helpmeet, whom he should have been able to depend on for comfort and hope, functions as somewhat of a spiritual temptress in his life instead, inviting him to doubt God's goodness. And probably as a result of her own despair, she encourages him to forsake his faith in God and to end his own life. And so at this point in the text, we find Job sitting on an ash heap, scraping his skin with broken pottery in shock and grief and despair. At this point in the narrative, there are some things that Job doesn't know. So if you've got your hand out in front of you, um, we can, you can pick up in that section. Um, some things that Job doesn't know, and there are also some things that Job does know. Job, Job doesn't know that he has been handpicked for this suffering by God himself because of his faithful and upright service to God. He doesn't know that Satan has a plan to devour him and to destroy his faith in God. 
God is sovereignly allowing this trial in Job's life to see whether his faith in God as God will remain steadfast or whether Job is following God because God has blessed him with wealth, with comfort, with a good reputation and a large family. Job also doesn't know that his suffering is about to intensify with speculation about his moral standing from his friends who up to this point have been silent. Spoiler alert, eventually Job's friends will suggest that there's some hidden sin that is the cause of his suffering, and they will drag the only thing that Job has left besides his soul, his good reputation, right through the mud. However, Job does know that God is sovereign. In other words, that God is God. And his first response in the middle of his agony is to raise his voice in worship to God, acknowledging that he is the one who is given. He is the one who is taken away. When Satan strikes a second time, Job maintains a belief in God's goodness and refuses to believe anything evil of God. Can you see a foreshadowing of the second Adam in this, who doesn't listen to the voice of the tempter, but who refuses to doubt God? Job also knows that he is righteous, not perfect, of course, because Job himself will be quick to say that no man can stand in the right before God. And later in the book, Job will become more concerned with defending his own righteousness than with defending God's right to act as God. But Job is truly a humble self-examiner, concerned not only with his own failings, but with the potential failings of his children as well, to the point that he offers sacrifices routinely on their behalf, just in case they have cursed God in their hearts. The narrative repeats more than once that Job is blameless, so God knows that Job is righteous, and Job knows that he is righteous. And this righteous man is almost unrecognizable to his three friends who show up to comfort him because he's so changed by his unmeasurable sorrow and grief. And that is where our narrative picks up today. After Job has sat in silent grief with his friends for seven days and seven nights, he finally opens his mouth to speak. And you'll notice the brevity of verse two. It's just, and Job said. So this is a pivot point in the narrative. Will Job take his wife's advice and curse God and die? If he had, the book of Job would be a whole lot shorter than 42 chapters. But there is something else that Job believes God alone is the author of life. It is God who gives life, and God alone is authorized to take it away. And so Job does not open his mouth to curse God, nor does he take his life, as Satan is hoping he will, and as his wife suggests. He refuses to receive evil from God, and he stubbornly clings to his belief that God is fundamentally good. Instead, he opens his mouth and he curses the day that he was born. He doesn't curse the holy God, but his own birthday instead. Before the Lord, he opens his mouth and he wails one of the most poetic and heartbreaking laments in the Old Testament. It's the antithesis of singing happy birthday. It has all of the marks of a dirge. So our structure for this lament, there's two sections in it, and we can observe the parallelism in the Hebrew poetry to see what they are. The first section is marked by the repetition of the word let. So that's in verses 3 through 10. 
you'll notice that word repeated over and over. And then the second section is marked by the repetition of the word why. That's verses 11 through 26. The let section functions as a curse in retrospect that mourns Job's birth. And the why section mourns that God has not taken Job's life. So these are our two sections. We'll look at verses 3 to 10 first. In this first section, the word let is repeated 13 times, marking Job's deep regret that he was born at all. Let is a word that often marks the beginning of a curse or a blessing in scripture. Job is cursing the day of his birth, using metaphors that we find in other places in scripture that mark the cursed nature of our fallen world, symbols like death or darkness or barrenness. In verse three, he wants the day of his birth to be as if it had never existed. He wants it to be erased. And not just the day that he was born, but also the very night that he was conceived. In saying this, Job is not wishing that his mother had ended his life through abortion or infanticide, both of which would deny God's authorship of human life, but rather that he wished his parents had not conceived him at all, that his life had never come to be. Notice that Job uses the word man in his lament. According to commentator Christopher Ashe, this word refers to a man of distinction, an upstanding member of his community. In the ancient world, the conception of a male child was especially something to be celebrated, as it is still today in countries around the world where the man's labor provides for his aging parents and family. So for Job to curse his masculinity and his reputation shows the depth of his suffering. In verses 4 and 5, Job regrets the day of his conception. He uses deep poetic language like deep darkness and gloom, clouds and blackness. In Genesis 1, we read that light was one of the first things created by God. And throughout scripture, light is associated with goodness and order and life and creation. The type of darkness that Job is referring to in these verses bring to mind a darkness that is so dark, it is almost tangible. So if you've ever been to a part of the world that didn't have electricity, but um, the light was gone as soon as the generator is switched off at night, that's the type of darkness that Job is referring to here. In the ancient world, when people considered the afterlife, they thought of it as a dark underworld in which the dead made their home. According to commentator Christopher Ashe, Job is, in a sense, giving the day of his conception up to these death-like images. However, Pam brought to my attention a helpful point. This word for deep darkness that Job uses here is the same word that's used in Psalm 23, 4, where it's translated the shadow of death. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So even in a very deep and dark valley, the Lord, the good shepherd, is with Job. He doesn't feel it, and he doesn't see it, and he doesn't know it, but God actually is very present with him. What a comfort to be on this side of the cross and to know that God our shepherd is with us. In verse 4, Job wonders whether or not God should seek his conception. To be sought by God was to be remembered by him, to be paid attention to by God. Job wishes that God had ignored him instead of allowing him to be formed in utero. Ironically, the Hebrew word used in verse 5 for claim is also the word used for redeem in other parts of the Old Testament. Say, for example, in the book of Ruth, where there's a kinsman redeemer. 
the same word. He wishes, what Job is wishing here is that the darkness of pre-existence would buy him back. So it's almost like he's watching himself in reverse in a time-lapse video, wishing that his body would shrink down to its original form in utero and then disappear. So in his paralysis of sorrow, he wants to be uncreated. That's what he's asking. In verses 6 to 10, Job continues to lament the night that he was conceived. He says about that night, Let thick darkness seize it, and let it not rejoice among the days of the year. He wants the night itself to be barren of intimacy and joy, even going so far as to say that those who curse the day and rouse Leviathan, which is that great behemoth beast that we studied, so presumably those who do evil and invite darkness and chaos, should be given that day. So hear the sorrowful language at the end of this passage as Job mourns the night of his conception. He says, Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none. Nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. In other words, let the whole day be as darkness, because it didn't prevent my conception, but it allowed me entrance into this world full of trouble. So Job is feeling with a terrible intensity the bitterness and brokenness of the world, which has been put under a curse of sin and death until the return of Christ. And then we transition into this next section of the lament, which is the why section of the lament. The beginning of verse 11, the lament changes from a curse over Job's life to an unrelenting question, one that many, many people have asked in suffering. Why? He begins by asking why he wasn't stillborn at birth. He reasons for then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. I would have been at rest. Job just wants relief from the intensity of his anguish. And at this point in the ancient world, there's not a lot of clarity on what the afterlife looks like. But Job is assuming it's a place of rest. And that is what Job wants more than anything. In the following verses, 13 to 15, he describes the wealthy of the earth, the princes and the kings who are now asleep in the rest of death. No longer among those whose wealth give them a life of ease, Job wants the rest these kings have received. He longs for the rest that stillborn babies have, where affliction and weariness will never trouble them. Job then describes the rest of those lower in society whose affliction and toil are now over as they rest in death. Job himself is now impoverished, and he notes that both the small and the great in society are among the dead, and that the slave is free from his master there. Job wonders if the best, kindest thing that God could possibly do for him right now is to simply allow him to join these former slaves and servants in a realm where status in society no longer matters. Finally, Job wonders what purpose God could possibly have in allowing him to wake up day after day in his current state. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul, he laments, who long for death but it comes not, who are glad when they find the grave? Even though Job refuses to take his own life, he longs for God to take it. He feels completely hedged in by sorrow and trouble that he can't escape. So is Job suicidal? Well, to answer this question, we should note two points. And the first is that Job's desire to rest with the dead is inspired by a desire for relief and for rest, neither of which are available to him at this point in the narrative. 
The second thing is that Job does not act on his desire. Rather, he is asking God to take his life. He realizes that only God has the authority to give and take life. And note that God doesn't respond with a rebuke to Job's desire. Nor does he honor Job's desire, although he does eventually give him relief from his suffering, and we'll see that. Um, He has plans for Job still. He has plans to redeem his suffering that Job just can't see yet. Let's talk a little bit about the gift of lament, our biblical context for this. Job's lament signals to us that something is very, very wrong in the world and that what the world needs is a redeemer who can roll back the curse and make things right again. The world, once cursed by sin, is deeply dysfunctional. Pain and grief are a part of the realities that we face living in this world. And at this point in history, the Redeemer has not yet appeared. And we know that only the Holy One can make things right. Only He can repair what is so deeply broken. In this moment, Job is stripped bare of everything that would be comforting to him in his pain, his wealth, his friends, his family, his health. Job needs something that nothing on earth can provide for him. He needs someone who can take suffering and who can redeem it. There are many psalms of lament that are filled with similar mourning and similar longing. They are filled with lines like these. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim with sorrow. My soul is cast down within me. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. These psalms give us the gift of lament, which acknowledges the brokenness and suffering in the world without putting a pretty face on it. They point us toward the need for a redeemer and for a new creation as well. Jesus himself used the language of Psalm 22 when he suffered on the cross, begging God to give him rest from his anguish. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus begged God to let the cup of suffering pass from him, even sweating great drops of blood. His mental and emotional suffering were tremendous. Commentator Sean O'Donnell points out that Job felt forsaken by God when God was silent, but Jesus actually was forsaken by God for our sin. He goes on to say, Jesus was forsaken so that we might not suffer eternal silence and separation from God. Why is not the ultimate or even the foundational question in the book of Job, but Jesus says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, what he cried out on the cross as he died, is the ultimate and most foundational question in all of scripture. Without Jesus's propitiation, we are absolutely hopeless. We are guilty without the words becoming flesh and dying in his flesh as the God-man. We have no hope of eternal life eternal joy or eternal fellowship with a wise, just, and loving God. So as we read this depressing poem in Job 3, 
We can thank God for Job's honesty, but let us also thank God for the gospel, for our great Redeemer, who in his death redeemed us, saving us from sin and from Satan. And Job himself will later go on to say, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Praise God for Jesus our Redeemer, whom we will one day see with our own eyes. So how do we apply this? How do we apply this very challenging text? When it comes to lament, there are several different places where we can get stuck as Christians. We want to use this good gift of lament well. So I've noted a few places um, where where I've gotten stuck before so that I can encourage you not to get stuck in those same places. Let's keep pressing ahead in sorrowful yet rejoicing Christian lament. So the first place we can get stuck, we can refuse to engage it. It's easier to pick up a book or flick on the TV or pick up our phone or lose ourselves in food and exercise. Escape is easier than lament because it pretends the world's brokenness isn't there. But have you seen the dysfunction in the world? There is so much pain, illness, tragedy, poverty, injustice, corruption, death, Even those of us who live in the Disneyland that is America must acknowledge that the curse brought on the world by sin is real. Job opened his mouth to comment on his suffering, so let's ask ourselves, have we taken the time to notice suffering, our own or others? The second place that we can get stuck is we can refuse to enter it. Maybe we're willing to acknowledge that the brokenness is there, but we don't want to actually deal with it. Stiff-arming our emotions is easier than responding to suffering with appropriate emotion. The relief that crying about something brings can feel very vulnerable to us. It's easier to cling to our pride and refuse to bend to that pain. But Job cried out, "'Naked I came from the womb, and naked I will depart.'" Our lives are bookended by the vulnerabilities of birth and death if we allowed ourselves to feel the weakness and the effects of the curse. Another place we get stuck, we can refuse to offer our suffering to God. It's easier to bring our pain to the people around us than it is to bring it to God. When Job opened his mouth, he did not address his friends or his wife or the sky. He addressed God himself. And this is exactly what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. We can offer our laments to God because he's our Father. He loves us. And even in his sovereignty over our suffering, he has not forgotten us and he has not left us. He can do something for us. Have we cried out to the Lord? The fourth place that we can get stuck, we can forget that Jesus is with us in our suffering. Now, Job couldn't do this. He didn't have the advantage of being on this side of the cross, but we can. You don't have a child, neither did Jesus. You don't have a spouse, neither did Jesus. You lost a parent or a loved one, so did Jesus. You don't have money or a job. Neither did Jesus. Your friends have betrayed you and rejected you. That's what Jesus' friends did. You've been talked about behind your back. That happened to Jesus. You've been judged by others. Jesus too. You don't want to die. Neither did Jesus. 
you feel like God has deserted you, so did Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows. He was a man well acquainted with grief. Have you remembered that Jesus suffers with you? Place number five, where we can get stuck. When it comes to suffering that's caused by our own sin, we can forget that Jesus paid the price for it. Job wasn't suffering because of his sin in this case, although later he does sin because he suffers, as Dr. Rada reminded us. But sometimes our own sin can cause us to suffer, and in these moments we must cling to the cross of Jesus. This is important because without a deep conviction that Jesus has, in fact, paid the price for our sin, we will certainly live under the weight of our guilt and our shame. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way, He has fully paid for all my sin with his precious blood. Amen. Have you remembered that your sin is paid for by Jesus, even if there are consequences? Number six, we can forget that suffering is temporary. All suffering for the Christian has an expiration date. And one day, scripture teaches, Jesus will rend the heavens and come down and he will set up for himself an eternal throne, making for himself a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwell. Listen to these words from Revelation 21 and 22, describing the eternal throne of God and of the Lamb. It says, He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, because the former things have passed away. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Have you chosen to remember that suffering is not forever? And finally, We can get stuck when we refuse to bring our suffering to the Lord in prayer and to ask him for deliverance. God knows that the time allotment that he has for each suffering he puts into our lives. Job asks many why questions in his lament, but he never actually asks God to deliver him from suffering. I'm not sure why that is. On the basis of Jesus' blood, we know that we have a direct line to God the Father, that Jesus intercedes for us, and that the Spirit himself prays for us with groanings that are too deep for words. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. When God heard the cries of the Hebrews, he delivered them from Egypt. And God still hears the cries of his people. The Psalms are filled with requests for deliverance. Let's keep asking. Let's keep seeking. Let's keep knocking. God himself has promised to deliver us in the time frame that he knows. And he wants us to come to him and ask. Even Jesus begged God for deliverance in the Garden of Gethsemane. Have you asked him to deliver you? So as we move into a time of prayer and, and worship, remember, let's keep our personal sufferings confidential at our tables, but please do take the time to share your burdens with each other, to pray for each other, to point each other to Jesus. Um, 
There are members of our prayer team that are available. Prayer team, would you mind just raising your hand if you're here? So back here at the table, um, we have a friend from the prayer team, and she excels at um, and right and right here, Michelle as well too. So yes, so two women from the prayer team are here. Please, if you have, if you came in with a deep burden, you would like relief and release. Please talk with them, ask them to pray for you. They would love to do that, and they excel at that. So um, we'll sing "Man of Sorrows" in just a little bit as well. So thanks. let me pray for us real quick before we go back to our conversations. Lord, thank you for these women. Thank you for the time that they've taken to be here this morning. Would you please be with them in their suffering? Help them to know in ways that are personal and real that you care about them. You've not forgotten them and their pain. Um, Lord, for those of us who are not suffering right now, would we be aware and sensitive to those around us? And would you make us just vessels of mercy and your grace to one another now? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.